today's topic is making cover crops work in areas with less than 20 inches of rainfall. And it's something I've been wanting to do for a while, and maybe you could say I've been hesitating a little bit because those of you know that uh, I live in southeastern Pennsylvania. And full disclaimer, we actually get double that. We actually get 40 inches of rainfall, so that's my personal experience. That may seem like I'm unqualified to have this talk. I get that. That being said, I've been to uh, dry land areas around the world, and I have been uh, observing what goes on there. And the nice thing about it is there certainly are principles in cover cropping that do apply literally worldwide, no matter what your precept is, anywhere from 10 inches annual to over 100 inches annual. I've seen cover crops working in all those scenarios. And I like to remind my dry land friends that just because I get 40 inches of rain a year doesn't mean that's all just glory because being too wet sometimes can be just as as detrimental as being too dry. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there right up front here that that's where I'm coming from. I'm looking forward to some folks I see on here that could maybe – uh, chime in later on at the end and comment and so forth on on this on this topic because I'm sure there'll be some good ideas that can be shared. So you asked the question, well, how can you grow cover crops in in a low rainfall area? They take up moisture, right? Well, yeah, they do take up moisture, but what's our option? Is this our only option? Uh, you see this picture here of basically fallow tilled soil. And this happened to be in Australia. I'm going to draw heavily on Australia today because that's where most of my experience has been in dry land areas. And I've been up to uh, Derrick's region and other people, uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, Western U.S., over in Eastern Europe. I've been in areas that have had less, that, that average less than 20 inches of rainfall. So, you know, you look at this picture here and knowing the the group that I'm talking to, you're like, well, that, you know, it's definitely not what we want to see. So how do we grow cover crops? And what is the point of growing cover crops in a low rainfall environment? And uh, it's, it's, it's against the backdrop of the question, can I use available moisture to be able to grow a plant that may not help my cash crop? First of all, I just mentioned before I even go down this list here, what what does nature do when, when you leave nature go, even in dry areas, there tends to be some plants growing. So we know that it is indeed possible. So some of the key concepts here for low rainfall areas, and and, and I'll just say a lot of these you've seen before for uh, other areas, but uh, there's some of the ones that I came up with here. And maybe, I'm not saying this is the most important, but it's certainly one of the most important there, feeding the biology of the soil. I think we're finding out now that that is huge in the long-term investment in our soils is to feed that biology, and you have to use plants to do that. Yes, you can bring in compost, and you can bring in different amendments and stuff, but that's that works in certain situations, but that's cost prohibitive, and it's just not available in a lot of areas. 
So having the option, it, it brings us back to the only option then of, of growing plants because we know that that works. And if we can, of course, manage for the diversity of the species, and I'm going to say not just in cover crops but also in cash crops as well. The soil doesn't know if a plant is a cash crop or a cover crop. So if we can have diverse species, that is definitely going to build a foundation of success. And I, I, I'll just point out again, the, the Derek Axton is on here from Saskatchewan is, uh, using companion cropping or multi-species cash crops growing together. And that's a kind of a new area of growing, of farming. And he's in a dry area and I, I'm, I'm trying to mimic some of those things even on my farm where I can. So the diversity of species is very, very important to make this work. And then here's what flies in the face of conventional wisdom, having something growing year-round, because agriculture has evolved in the dryland areas to save the moisture for the cash crop. Just from a, a theoretical viewpoint, that may seem like the way to go, but now looking at what we know now and the effectiveness of biology and i would say building a building case studies if you will of farmers who are successful in using cover crops in low fall areas are indeed growing trying to grow something year round and so what are the benefits we get out of this well some of it is keeping the soil cooler just because we have a plant growing there it literally blocks the sun and keeps the soil cooler through shading. Now we're gonna, I'm gonna talk about temperatures later on and how that affects soil life, but I'll just leave that for now. And then of course the big one here is water management. Just gonna go through these and we're gonna discuss them a little bit more broadly later, but, uh, water infiltration, being able to capture the rain as it falls from the sky, being able to hold the water that falls, limiting erosion from wind or from water, and then also limiting evapotranspiration. So these are some of the things that are, are really, really important. And it does vary. That last one there varies depending on what part of the latitude you are. As we were discussing before we came on here, it makes a difference if you're in northern latitudes versus southern latitudes. The intensity of the sun and all that does indeed have a role in how this all works out. So I think, first of all, at the outset here, I want to just make a comment, and I, I just put this slide in here about adjusting expectations in dry areas. I would have to say that it is there is more management that comes into play when you're working in a dry land environment. You could say it's a little less forgiving. I'm not sure if it's more risky. I didn't want to put that up there. It's only more risky if you don't know what you're doing. So that's, I just kind of want to mention that. So, you know, when you're in, when you're in dry land, less than 20 inches of rainfall, uh, you know, to, to be able to make this work, it's not going to be a cookie cutter approach. And this, this applies to any cover cropping, but more so 
with working in dry land areas. And, and I'll, we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through. But uh, I just think to, it's, to, to be fair to the topic, adjusting expectations, I think, is important because the dry land areas essentially mostly have not been the leaders of the cover crop movement. However, that being said, those in those areas, there's beginning to now emerge a group of, I'm going to call very top level manager type farmers that are indeed making it work. So again, it's a little perspective here on my approach to all this and, and, and my approach to the topic today. So I've uh, been to Australia a couple times. Uh, this is Josh Walters, southeastern Australia. He said a statement that I've used frequently. Those of you who have heard me speak live have probably seen this slide. His comment is, in Australia, we need to build a bigger bucket. And that is directly applied to the soil's ability to capture and retain water. And so he says every drop of water that falls out of the sky, we want to capture it and we want to hold it as long as possible. And the way we do that is with no soil disturbance, cover crops, diversity, and living roots. So I just listed four basic things there. We apply that to almost every single aspect of cover cropping. But here again, it applies to low rainfall areas. And I think there's a couple other things here, too. I just want to lay the case out for how this works. It's a long-term commitment. And again, it applies to cover cropping in general, but maybe more so in the context of dry land, because there are some years where, frankly, it's just too dry to even get a cover crop to germinate. And I can talk all day here, but if it's too dry to get the germinate, it ain't happening. So I get that. I understand that. But it's about being an opportunist, and I'm going to share a few of those things coming up. So the whole long-term commitment really, really does apply to this conversation. And when I say long-term, I'm saying minimal 10 years. Uh, if, if you're going into cover cropping and you're in a dry land environment, you want to have essentially a 10-year plan. And I'm not saying that you have every year figured out. What I'm saying is you are looking at this as a long-term commitment to make this work. So that's just an overview going into the discussion. Uh, some more specifics now. Uh, mentioned soil temperatures. I, I want to thank the Burley County Conservation District from North Dakota for some of these pictures. That area, I, I was, I think I was really, I guess you would say, learned about more of the dry land cover cropping when I spoke for their meeting in 2007, I think it was, in, in North Dakota. And, and that was, for, for me, it was really informative to see the, some of the work they were doing there in this low rainfall environment. So there's just a picture there of in the summer. And, and I'm assuming that's, that's probably uh, an inch or two into the soil. Uh, right there's a, a 20 degree difference in the soil temperature. And I mean, you might, you might say that's not that high there, but when you look at a scientific uh, viewpoint management of it, again, I'm going to credit the Burley County Conservation District for this, for these, this information. At 140 de degrees, uh, the soil bacteria, they die. 
And as the temperature is lower, there is an increasingly available moisture is used for growth. And that just is common sense, but this is the data. We kind of know this, but with, but if you can keep your soil 10, 20, 30 degrees cooler, you're going to do a lot for keeping your soil life alive. And that's why we can see some benefits that sometimes I could argue take take the place of the moisture that we use up as a cover crop. And just the fact that a cover crop uses up moisture, it gives that back because the next rain that falls, every drop is going to infiltrate into it. So the whole moisture, I guess you'd say concern, is a real concern, but it comes back to management. I, I, I thought about calling it the moisture myth, but I thought that may be a little too strong because you got to be a really good manager here and you got to pay attention to the weather cycles that you may have that are historically natural in your area. But if you can keep that temperature lower, and I think this is one of the keys that cover crops do, because that picture I showed you of the bare soil, I mean, I've seen readings of soil on the top one inch that's well over 140 degrees on a very, very hot day. And it's basically cooking everything to death. So you could just use an analogy that uh, the, the soil life in the soil is not much different than you and I as human beings. Now, once it gets over 100 degrees, things go downhill pretty quick. And so that's, that's again, just a, a good analogy I feel that we can use here when we think about what we're doing to our soil when our soil is not covered. And I just... Honestly, I know enough farmers who are doing this that there's I, – I, I can't think of a good reason to do a fallow, you know, situation in any given crop rotation. So now I teased you a little bit in some of my promos for this here about the driest area in the world that are successfully growing cover crops. Um, the farmer here who happens to be the fallow – the fourth one in from the right, the blue shirt, looks like he might be holding water con uh, container or something. This is on his farm near Adelaide, Australia. And he said, I just have to go on what he said, that they're looking at about an average of a 10-inch rainfall annual is their average, 10 inches in a year. And he made the comment that he thinks he might be the driest farmer in the world growing cover crops. And this is with no irrigation. So I'll, I'll let him stand behind that, but, uh, it is a definitely a very, very, very dry area. Now there's some things to note here on this picture. This is wheat that was harvested about a month before and obviously use a stripper head. That's a key here. Uh, again, that's to keep the soil covered and it's also to, inherently then also allows the rainwater to infiltrate better. So that was a key component here of his method to all this. Now, if you look close, you can see a little bit of a cover crop coming through. And uh, you'll see this frequently in dry areas. The seeding rates are very low, and that's important. Number one, because it's dry, their overall gross Yield, gross profit is certainly not as much, so they can't afford to spend a lot of money on covers, but then again, they don't need to 
in a case here where they're using the residue of a cash crop to essentially keep the soil covered. And I would say just enough of plant life there to keep the biology going. And uh, sometimes they'll catch a timely rain, and this will really show up nicely. I'm going to show you a picture of that later on. But in this case here, they're trying to keep – he's trying to keep the biology active in his soil so that there can be a lot of benefit there. Now, um, as I always do, I dug a hole, and here was, happened to be a radish that was part of the mix that was planted here. And you can just see a little bit of the soil profile, and it was – I mean, if it, if if you want to use the term bone dry, this would be this would be it. But and I was even impressed that 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 radish was even alive. And I couldn't get to the bottom of the root, but there's moisture down there somewhere, or it would be dead. Uh, and even though I dug about 18 inches deep, <clears throat> now they had moisture sensors that were in this field, and they were doing some research and some actual using cover crops. And not using cover crops, they were testing moisture seven, it's gonna say seven feet or two meters deep. And they had just put them in. So I never really followed up and got the data, but they wanted to learn how this moisture factor works on where cover crops are planted and where they're not. Uh, I know he had said that preliminary data was that there was very little difference uh, between the where there was cover crops and where there wasn't. So this, this guy was a couple years into this and obviously pursuing it. He was very positive about it, very upbeat about it. He was just one of those farmers who was that typical mindset of, I am going to make this work. Uh, yep, there's some risk to it, and I have some failures, but I'm going to make it work. And so here again, maybe the driest place on earth growing cover crops. Maybe some of you know some other places that are drier, but that's that was the story right there. So speaking of techniques that are used, here's stripped wheat. This happens to be in North Dakota, strip, stripper head wheat on the right, leaving the stubble stand so it catches snow. And in northern areas, this is like you got to do this. You just have to or you'll lose that precious moisture in the winter. On the left-hand side there is pea stubble, which was basically spread out low and doesn't catch any snow. So it's not just putting cover crop seed in the ground and it magically works. There's, there is methods behind this and it's management. And I'm going to keep coming back to that, that it's, you have to manage in the context of the geography that you're in to make this successful. The other thing too, uh, again, that I saw, in, in Australia, and I've, I've seen it in many areas that are dry land, is the use of cattle, sheep, or animals in a grazing situation. And just as in any other cover cropping situation, if you have this option, it's going to make cover crops work even better. Here they're, they're doubling, of course, as a forage source. And this was sheep in Australia out grazing on primarily it was uh, radishes there. So using animals, again, is maximizing that opportunity. Some of you may have heard of David Cook uh, from uh, from Australia. This is on when I was on his farm, and he's been doing this for a long time. This is kind of a cool picture here because you can see there was a thunderstorm moving in on the background. And I wanted to show you this because his soil 
is ready to receive the rain. Now, I don't know exactly what he got, but I would estimate we got a quarter of an inch out of that. And unfortunately, I did not have pictures after that, but we walked out in his fields and it just, of course, it all soaked in. It was just, his fields were prepared for that. He had built his bucket, so to speak. And this is one of the, one of the leading farmers in Australia that has been using cover crops for quite a few years now. And just to be able to see it working on his farm, you know, it's just gratifying. You hear about this stuff, but then you go and you actually see for yourself. So just to go back again to uh, my friend Josh Walters, again in Australia. I had this picture earlier. This picture was taken on a dry spell. They were three months. I think he only had three inches, I believe, in three months or less than three inches of rain. Sometimes I have to think through the conversion there. But this particular picture here had been sprayed out with glyphosate about two weeks sooner. But you can see uh, not a heavy rate of cover crop, not a lot of growth. It was very dry. Now, I want to take you to another year. This is also Josh, and he's there in the very middle behind uh, the girl there in the middle back there. This was on that same exact farm. I was there twice. This was a year that had rained, and they had caught some timely rains. And here you can see how that's that's a really, really nice cover crop. They were they were just happy as can be with that. And his comment, this is part of his comment of building the bigger bucket, but also maximizing the opportunity. And I think that this is, again, a mindset that farmers need to have in anywhere in the world, the dry land or, or elsewhere, of maximizing the opportunity. And he's the type of guy, he's going to be planting cover crops pretty much no matter what. And then when you catch that maybe one in four, maybe one in five years where you get an outstanding result because the timing of the rains coincided with the planting of the cover crops, you're going to reap many years of benefits out of a cover crop like this. And that was the message that, that he was sharing that day. So the key is, is be ready. I'm, I'm going to tell you my Montana story and right now. Some of you may have heard this, but if, if you know anything about the culture of Montana, you'll appreciate this. I was met a Montana farmer once at a conference, and this was several years ago. It was a really good summer, and they had quite a bit of rain, much more than normal. And he made the comment how these cover crops were just fantastic that year and how some years they hardly ever grow. But that year, he said, it was just, he said, I can really see the the difference that cover crops made in my soil. And and I told him, I said, well, it was nice you were prepared for that, that you could be able to do that and take advantage of that opportunity. And in true Montana form, he said, yeah, you got to have your pistol cocked. And I thought that was a good analogy, basically meaning you got to be ready. And when when the opportunity arises, you have to have the seeds in the ground or be ready to put the seeds in the ground if you happen to catch an unexpected one-inch rain or something like that. And that's what I mean by that. you got to be ready to maximize that opportunity when it happens because it's not going to happen probably every year. So – just in reflecting here, you know, that's wasted when you just don't plant anything. Uh, there's, there's so much, you know, is the opportunity that is lost in that. Now, also here, I wanted to show this because this was actually, you'll, you'll notice that field that's, that's a little bit greener, more or less in the foreground. 
and you notice the fence goes up on the right and then comes across the picture. That is management. That happens to be a farmer who's been using cover crops for a while. He was actually renovated his pasture by planting mixed species of, you could call them cover crops, double uh, and doubling up as forage. Again, this was a, a situation where uh, he had sheep, and he said, that's my neighbor's field on the, on the far right and on the top. And he said, you can just see the difference. And we actually walked over, and the difference was actually more more apparent when you looked at it close. But that, of course, the same amount of rainfall. And I don't know what his neighbor, his management of his sheep were, but it was just that was just his picture there of management. And basically his point was keeping mixed species growing there, keeping the diversity even in his pasture uh, ground there. So that was just a an opportunity to see that. Now, most all my talk today is geared to there's where the non-irrigated areas. I wanted to show you this picture here. Again, Australia, limited irrigation. They had availability of, of some water, and they basically, their idea was dedicate the water that they had to getting the cover crop growing, basically just to get it germinated. And this is, this is some of the plots that were, that were in there. So, again, where water is limited or where you just don't have a lot of opportunity, how do you manage that? And, of course, if it never gets started to grow, it will never grow. So uh, their feeling was in years where they don't catch a timely rain, it, it paid them to irrigate to get their cover crop coming up. So just looking at different uh, species of cover crops, which ones are better? This, is again, is a cover crop plot, and I don't have the data on this in here of what the rainfall was, but obviously it is fairly dry. You can see some species are doing better than others. Then here is the one of the driest ones I saw. This literally was only one inch of rain in, in three months. Very little growth this year in, in this situation here. So if you look through the plot more on the left, the upper left-hand side, you'll see some that hardly grew at all. And I did not get the, the list of these species, but I do remember, I, I, and this is coming from, you know, my travels and so forth, what some of the better ones are. And there's nothing new on here. There's no magical drought tolerant cover crop that, that I'm aware of. But sorghum sedan looks strong. Sun hemp is decent. Some of the millets, there's a lot of different types of millets out there. Sunflowers seem to do well. Uh, all of these have somewhat of an aggressive rooting, which makes sense. So this is some of the uh, ones you could plant in the summer. You could throw radishes in there in the summer if you wanted. Uh, in the fall, radishes always look fairly good in these situations. Again, it's because of the taproot that can go down and find moisture. Cereal rye is good. Some varieties of triticale. Annual ryegrass, I was hesitating if I should put this up here or not. One reason is because a lot of dryland areas just don't like annual ryegrass because they, they typically be growing wheat there, and it could become a weed. So that's why I left it off, but you may ask the question, annual ryegrass is a deep rooter. So in a dairy situation, uh, yeah, no 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 problem there. Uh, cash grain, small small grains, you might want to be careful of putting annual ryegrass in this, in this, uh, in this type of a region. So what about cover crop seeding rates? I, I mentioned that. 
Um, this here farmer was very, very happy with this rate of radish. It was between, he wasn't sure, between one and two pounds an acre. That's about what it looked like. But that, and, and again, someone has been growing cover crops for a while. So it, it's just, in this case, his goal wasn't to have 100% foliage covered. You can see that there is still some residue left there. But the seeding rates can be dropped back significantly in the drier land areas. But it does come back to what you're trying to do. If it's forage, then you probably want to increase your seeding rates to accommodate that situation. If you have enough of uh, residue there from a previous crop or residue, you know, you don't have to have 100% coverage because not only is it a seed-saving cost, the biological effect, those roots go out, they go down, but they go out and they're in the soil profile. So they're doing, they're doing some good. And, um, I, I just, I'm just giving a general statement here that, uh, in this case, lower seeding rates are pretty much a standard for low rainfall areas. I've heard someone say already, and I think this is just a guideline, but the amount you spend on a cover crop per acre can be correlated close to what your annual rainfall is. And it works in American dollars. So uh, 20 inch rainfall, 20 bucks an acre is max. 30 inch rainfall, $30 an acre. So take that for whatever it's worth. It's just a really loose guideline. Uh, but anyway, uh, thought I'd mention that. Again, talking about species, uh, one of the things that was interesting is I saw this in several different fields. They're very, very dry. I literally used a screwdriver to dig this radish root out. I could not use a shovel. It was too dry. It was too hard. So, uh, again, this is about 18 inches deep, not a lick of moisture there that I could tell. Uh, what was interesting is if you look on the picture on the right, that's canola or oilseed rape on the right, and the radishes on the left, two radishes and one canola. There was no, we, could, we couldn't find any canola plants that were, that were really getting down. Now, they were still alive, as you can see on that picture, but they weren't going down. What they were excited about, and this was new for me, is they have high potassium uh, in their subsoil. So they were figured, they were excited about these radishes pulling up potassium that their cash crops never reach. They seemed to say they had some data on it. Uh, but again, that was just, uh, and, and that soil type in that area, these radishes were getting down there, finding potassium and bringing it to the top. So again, that's just, what are you trying to accomplish? What's, what can your cover crops do? What can't they do? What's the limitations? All these factors are going to enter in from area to area, but Again, the importance of knowing what you're trying to accomplish is really important. So <clears throat> that's the bulk of my presentation. Here's kind of the outline. I'm going to uh, open it up here. I would like to have some comments or some questions. I just uh, got everyone to open up now. So if, if you have any question or comment, I would really, really appreciate it. If I don't know the answer, maybe some other ones will here. So what's your questions for us this morning? Steve, this is David. Yep. I am. I'm just curious, what, what percent organic matter, those slides you're showing from down, uh, down under there, are they, uh, achieving, uh, with those cover crops? And is they kind of comparable to, well, I noticed, uh, you know, you got some wooded areas in the background. Yep. I mean, yep. that's kind of what we always talk about. You, you maybe, you can't get 8%, but you ought to be able to get something close to what's in those undisturbed right. natural areas. 
Um, as far as I know, most of those areas were in the 1% to 2% range in the fields. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, and I will say it's difficult to build organic matter quick because of the of the – you just you're just not getting a lot of rooting and biomass action going on there, but uh, but they're 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 slowly helping that a little bit. Um, so yeah, one to two percent is is pretty much what I was familiar with. Okay. You know, one one other comment about your temperatures. People forget that if you look at the national uh, or, or standards for composting. Oh yeah. Uh, it's only it's 131 degrees. I think uh-huh. is what the standard. I mean, you have to maintain it for. Yeah you know, consecutive days, that kind of thing. But if folks don't, do not think that temperatures affect uh, mm-hmm. microbial action in the soil, just mm-hmm. just compare it to that. You know, mm-hmm. we compost. And actually, you know, when you're windrowing, you actually compost it at 115 degrees. Well, Again, okay. you're, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a kind of an interesting observation there. So um, I would just say, too, if any of you can to, to, to type in the chat uh, box, I saw um, one person did already, but uh, – if there's anything you want to ask there, if you're not don't have a microphone, feel I'll watch that. But uh, I see Derek's on Derek's from Saskatchewan, 14 to 16 inches. Do you have uh, comments, questions? What did I miss? Oh, I thought you did really well. That's okay. pretty much what we've been seeing, and I think your comment on context was really great. I mean, that's exactly what I tell the guys. I mean, it's all about context, understanding what where you live and how much rain you get. Because I mean. Where we are, we want more rain, and, and obviously we want to grow a bunch of biomass, but, I mean, the reality is it usually doesn't happen. So, you know, the low seeding rates is exactly what we've been doing, and we've been trying to seed as close to behind the combines as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year we're going to do some attempting to get it seeded before harvest. Uh, you know, I think that's the biggest thing for us is getting it established because, the, you know, the seed costs the same and the mm-hmm. equipment pass costs the same. So mm-hmm. for us to try to establish it sooner so we can have a better chance of mm-hmm. getting your rain to start it. So, Derek, how do you approach when the ground is too dry for germination? Do you plant anyway, or do you wait for rain? Uh, we did this year. We seeded a couple of thousand acres behind the combines, and it's, at, it's the first time I've seen it sit in dry dirt for just about six weeks, almost two months, some of it. Wow. You know, and then the end of September, we got some rain, and it grew. And okay. I was starting to wonder if it was going to grow in the spring, but it did come finally. Okay. So, I guess the only... I'll just mention the, the the worst thing that could happen is you get a very light shower of rain that germinates the cover crop and then it's just not enough moisture to keep it living. So that's the that's the risk you take in doing that, correct? Absolutely, yeah. And we did have that happen the very first field we seeded uh, back in well, it would have been the end, almost the end of July mm-hmm. that happened to us, and yep. we lost probably fifty or seventy percent of it. Mm-hmm. The German died, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I just think that is something that you need to tell farmers it's the risk they assume because we, we assume that same exact risk in our cash crops. And when it fails, we understand it. Sometimes cover crops get a bad rap, but it's a risk. It just is. And I think it's important to, to share that. Well, any other comments, Derek, while, while you're on, because you, you live this every day. Do you want to just briefly mention your companion cropping your cash crops to what, to whatever degree you want to just what you're trying to do there? Well, no, I guess a quick note, like on the, the covers that um, that work well in dry land that we've noticed, that your list was really pretty much bang on. The other one we noticed that we really liked was safflower. Oh. We thought it did really well in the dry land. Um, last year in our plots, it was probably the one that seemed to care the least about the drought. You know, it I looked see. pretty good. Okay. I will take um, note of that. Good. Yeah, we were quite happy with it. So, and you know, it produced uh, 
really well, considering, you know, compared to the, all the other species we yeah. got out. So as far as the intercropping, I mean, yeah, all of our broadleaf, we've been, we started in 11. Andy Kirschman's on too, and maybe he can chime in, but we started in 11. I think Andy was maybe even ahead of me a couple of years on that. Uh-huh. And, you know, we started with fairly basic, but we started adding legumes to our non-legume broadleaf crops. Like yeah. we started with canola and graduated okay. to mustards. Yep. Um, yeah, and that's how we've been doing all of our broadleaf acres now for the last three years. Uh-huh. But this year we're going to add legumes to everything. We're okay. going to have, there won't be a monster crop on the farm. Okay, so that's, 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 that's great. I knew you were headed that way. And for some people, that's, that's like you're out of your mind territory, but, uh, there's, there's certainly growing momentum for that kind of stuff, but you got to know what you're doing to do that. Yeah. Uh, Andy, do you want to, do you want to chime in here? Andy's from, uh, Alberta. If you could, uh, get your microphone on there, Andy, and just, uh, any comments, thoughts, suggestions? Well, I, maybe I was ahead of Derek, but I definitely didn't implement on the number of acres. I, I started with 20 acres one year and yeah. had this graph that was canola on an intercrop, but, uh, um, I think the seeding rate is something we still have to, have to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, we see all those pictures of six, seven, eight thousand pound an acre biomass rolling right down, and boy, do we think that looks good. But yeah. that takes years of our moisture to grow that, so yeah. it probably isn't the goal that we should have. Right. But right. Regarding covers, we're we're in a pretty. I think we're probably a shorter season than Derek. He's a little mm-hmm. further south and mm-hmm. warmer. Mm-hmm. Um, my goal is to start figuring out what we can companion crop, low-growing legumes and other forbs mm-hmm. that we can grow with our cash crops, and then the herbicide is going to mm-hmm. figure out. But hopefully we, we can back off on that as we introduce the diversity anyway. Mm-hmm. Good. Now, um, see, I see there's a, uh, a Justin on here. I'm not sure if this is the Justin from Alberta or not. Uh, just If you can hear me, Justin, when mine – you, uh, yeah. Is this the Justin from Alberta? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Justin Dubin from Alberta. Okay, good. I, I didn't see the last name here, so good. Any comments from you and about this topic? Yeah, most of our land is irrigated, but uh, I'd say there's a lot more risk uh, where the, the dry land patches are that have cover crops. See, part of the reason I compare it to Australia with us is, is what Andy was saying, is the season is so short. So if you don't right. get a little bit of moisture... When you seeded that, like you only got a little bit of time to grow that cover crop, mm-hmm. and after that point, it's too cold. So mm-hmm. I think I'm kind of on board with Andy's idea of, of trying to get either perennials growing there mm-hmm. or or establishing something with your cash crop. I guess with what Derek's doing too. So 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 you um, have some, so you have some irrigation. Do you, can you justify the cost of irrigation to help a cover crop grow? Yeah. Okay. When I grow a cover crop under irrigation, I irrigate it the same as I. I would my uh, cash crops. So okay. Awesome. I think it's just as much water, but mm-hmm. like in terms of, of moisture, we would average, I think, about 12 inches a year. Okay. And even with mm-hmm. irrigation, like, like last year, we had about six inches of moisture. Mm-hmm. We're still under that 20-inch limit. So uh-huh. yeah. 20 inches yeah. is like a lot of moisture to work with for us when you know the possibility of having uh, yeah. much less than that there is, yeah. is a reality. So. Yeah. I'd like uh, Monty to chime in here. And while you're getting on, Monty, if you're still with us, I'll, a few things in the chat box here. Uh, one question of any results of potassium increase in radish cover crops. I mentioned that, and that that is is indeed I've seen that in uh, quite a few areas ar- around around I'll say U.S. and well, I'm not sure about Canada, but yeah, 
we've seen uh, some potassium increases, especially when you analyze the foliage of uh, of of a radish. It will it will always show very high in potassium. And as far as noticing soil test levels go up, I don't have data on that. I know that's probably the bottom line, maybe the question you're asked, but I do know that it certainly helps in uh, in bringing that up there. Um, so anyway, Monty, are you still on? I uh, wouldn't mind hearing your comment uh, about everything here because Monty uh, spends a lot of time in, in the drier areas. So what's what's your comments, Monty? So one of the biggest things we always wonder about is what is what are we spending water-wise on a cover crop and what are we saving water-wise because of the cover crop, um, either saving from not needing a tillage pass because we've got Roundup-ready kochia mm. or uh, <laughs> saving from having, uh, uh, you know, cover on the ground and less soil temperature mm. and working with Jeff Mitchell for about five years on this right now. Yep. And uh, he has shown in, in uh, Central Valley, California, where we have pretty high ET rates, mm-hmm. that uh, you if you spend about 2.1, 2.3 inches of water on a cover crop, mm-hmm. you actually gain about 2.6 to 2.8 inches of water availability really? later in the season. So there's so, a net uh, gain? Yeah, he's documented wow. a net gain neutron probes and uh so working with one of his grad students right now she should have that uh published in a peer review journal will be submitted in june mm-hmm. so it's pretty exciting because that at the end of the day that's the question we need to answer yep. because uh in dry land farming or irrigated farming uh as a farmer myself and the customers we work with they wonder okay how much water am i wasting <laughs> And they think mm-hmm. wasting yeah, on a cover right. crop. Right. I can't afford to waste water on it. Yeah. Well, if we can show them that water balance, now we've mm-hmm. eliminated a big question in their mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, for sure, for sure. Uh, other questions from anyone? Hey, Steve, it's Wayne. Yes, Wayne. Just question on the on the safflower there. How late can that be planted in the fall? That's a question Somebody from Derek, if you're still on, Derek. How late can you plant safflower? Are you talking about Montana now, Wayne? Yeah, that's correct. How'd you like my analogy there? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's typical. Yeah, uh, Derek, uh, I don't know if you're still on. How? What's the planting window for safflower? The stuff I did was in June okay. that we got good growth on. I, I didn't add it to my late season um, mixes. I, it was just in our full season covers that we grazed. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I didn't. Gotcha. Okay. But I. I'm going to try some this fall after seeing how well it did. I was wishing, but when it was so dry, when we were seeding those covers, they were pretty basic. Mm-hmm. We didn't get too exotic when it was so dry this mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I, I, it, I'm thinking it would probably, if you have the moisture, it would probably work like after, right after wheat, and that's mm-hmm. kind of my, what my question was for. Good. Um, um, uh, Kabar from California, NRCS. Has a question here in the chat. What I understand, or as a comment, actually, I want to I want to follow up. What I understand, the radish is mining for potassium, or for excuse me, for uh, phosphorus, since it doesn't have any mycorrhizal association. And I think that is a correct statement. Uh, and it, and just again, we're talking about getting nutrients up and so forth. Uh, indeed, because radish is a, a brassica, it does not host mycorrhizae, but it it does 
search out and collect uh, phosphorus as well. So that's a that's a good comment there. So are there any questions about anything in cover cropping? I'm going to just post the next topic that we're going to do here next week. But um, any other questions at all? Let's just open it up to anything else. Any other questions you might have? You can stay on this topic as well, but just want to. Yeah, I've got a, little... a question for you guys. Yes, Eric. Um, yeah, this is Eric in South Dakota. So, yeah, we typically end up trying to ask ourselves the same question um, from year to year. Is it too dry to seed cover crop? And yeah. so has anybody messed around with trying to seed deeper and then either adjust your closing wheels to not close the seed trench or maybe mm. um, just lightly close it, you know what I mean? Mm. Seed deeper to try to seed into moisture but then not bury the seed so deep. Does anyone have experience on seeding deeper uh, just to catch, get moisture, but then not closing the seed trench so the seed has a chance to get up? I just have a comment about that. I think that's a great idea for funneling what moisture you do get into the seed trench, and it's also a good idea for helping break wind mm. at the soil surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for, for those two reasons, it, it's it's really good. I mean, uh, in Mexico, they use some of that planting technique where they'll plant it in a valley in order to yeah. uh, draw water to it. Mm. So I have not seen it done, but um, I just wanted to throw that out there. Well, and I'll chime in here, too. I have seen, again, going back to Australia, where they're planting wheat literally six inches below the soil surface, but the design of it, was the wheat seed was only covered by about two inches, so there's like a four-inch divot, if you want to call it that. Uh, now, that takes a lot of horsepower. It's essentially like strip tilling, uh, but that's the way they get it up and going. And uh, I'm not saying that would be very aggressive tillage to do that, but it certainly is a technique. Now, personally, uh, once we were very dry <clears throat> here on my farm, and, yes, we do get dry, I want to remind everybody, we always have a dry spell sometime during the year. Uh, but we were very dry, and moisture was down uh, was at two inches, and I planted radishes two inches deep, which is a lot deeper than you would normally suggest to do that. And they actually came up fine. I did not did nothing to adjust the closing wheels as, to not close the slot. They come up fine. Uh, two reasons: one is because we didn't have rain uh, that would have uh, closed the slot even further, and my soils, I'm going to have to say, are healthy enough that they wouldn't have crusted over anyway. So on a healthy soil, uh, I have found planting deeper is is a tactic that you can do, especially in the summer. It's amazing how how deep small seeds will come up. Uh, I think your your question, though, uh, Eric, uh, is, is merited because you can actually adjust some of the closing wheels. Even on a John Deere drill, you can adjust them further away. Uh, from or you just use spacers and so it doesn't close the slot completely and uh, so I don't know if anyone has experience with that but boy that's certainly something I would try if moisture's two two three inches deep I'd get it down there to get it going and get it growing any other comments on on that tactic Steve this is Aaron from Nebraska yep um, Paul Yaza here with UNL has quite a bit of guidance on planting around three inches deep, and he's found that by planting a cocktail of species, he's getting the larger seeded ones to, to kind of break it open, and then the smaller seeded stuff then will germinate after that or emerge. Mm-hmm. And so he finds the cocktails really important for, for emergence. Um, one other comment on uh, 
drought tolerant species in southwest Nebraska, they found that woolly pod vetch mm-hmm. actually germinates better with lower soil moistures. Oh. Um, kind of just an anecdotal thing, but uh, we're trying to utilize that a little more often in drier situations. Well, Aaron, and, uh, do you know where we've we had good success with sawflower too? So. Okay, that's good to hear, but do you know the where woolly pod vetch comes from? Go ahead. It comes from Australia. Maybe that's a hint on why it does better on drier situations. It's probably genetically, uh, you know, inclined to that. So that might be a little tip for some of you guys in dry land areas to to know. Um, and we got a couple questions coming in here. <clears throat> um, uh, Monty, if you're still on, uh, Derek is asking if if there's any data from Jeff Mitchell that's public there on that moisture usage. If you could get back to us on that, that would be kind of cool. Um, if it's available, that would be interesting data. So is that something you could have access to? I have the preliminary data, uh-huh. but I don't have the published data Understand. Yet from, is... from all five years. So that, we <laughs> yeah. should have that wrapped up in, uh, like I said, in June. Okay. So, Derek, uh, if you don't hear anything from Monty in the end of June, feel free to bug him. <laughs> or, or whatever. So uh, another question from Eon from the UK, would buckwheat be a good species for a dry land scenario because it germinates with low moisture and covers the ground fairly quickly to achieve shading? Anyone experience buckwheat in, in dry land? Well, uh, I'll just say that Derek responded to that, saying that he pretty much adds buckwheat to all their mixtures until September. So uh he, he says he really likes it, so I think Eon, that's a good one there for you to try. It sounds like uh, it sounds like it's uh, definitely one to try. Um, Steve, yeah. Um, one one question for you is: is um, Derek commented about wanting that information? Does do the other innovators on this phone call agree that that's a um, uh, a vital piece of information is knowing what that water balance exchange is versus just I think it would work. Uh, in order to convert more people in dry land areas to utilizing cover crops? Oh, I think it'd be a game changer. Uh, my I opinion. mean, I, I'd be curious on anybody else who yeah. wants to comment. They think that's yeah. a, a good good thing, you know, but. Um, what do others think? I think that's Lauren, number one. Go Lauren. I put, the, I put the link up on the website for that German uh, data that I shared last week on Twitter. Okay. That essentially is the same thing. Awesome. And then I know Neil. Locally, he's going to be doing some of that. Good. I think I think that's important because people who are on the fence need to see that. Plus, I think we need to also learn maybe how to manage things a little better when we see some of this data at different soiling depths, different soil depths, and so forth. Uh, others have any more comments on on that? I think it's absolutely critical. Um, this is Aaron from Nebraska again, mm-hmm. and uh, UNL are uh, here in Nebraska is also doing similar type research. And they have some on-farm trials this year and are going to continue on with them. So, mm-hmm. Good. Is uh, Dr. Ermach doing that work or somebody else? A counterpart, uh, Jenny Reese, um, she's collaborating with him, though. Okay. He has the most advanced sensing equipment in the world. So it, I haven't talked to him for four or five years. I reconnect. Thank you. I'm probably speaking for Derek and others is here. They want that sensors. They want their sensors, Marty. So <laughs> anyway, another question here from uh, Kabar from NRCS in California. Lentils 
is a legumin leguminous cover crop goes nicely in low moisture conditions. Uh, they said they noticed that in the drought of in California at their plant material center out there. So that's good to know as well. And and I do know that lentils seem to be prominent more in in dry land areas. Uh, anyone else have any comments on lentils? My list is growing here. Okay. Any other uh, a question? Our time's about up. I'll just if there's any other question, get it ready. Uh, I'm going to just mention. I'm going to kind of take an almost an opposite topic next week. Tips for successfully using cover crops in heavy clay soils, which these are the soils that tend to be wetter. So I don't know. I, I kind of intentional here. I'm going to swing the pendulum. And I'll just give you a hint. This will not surprise you. There will be some repetitive things because, as we all know, cover crop principles uh, work the same. But it's important to understand the application, though, of how that works because the way their management is altogether different. Uh, so that's going to be my topic uh, next next week coming up here. Uh, any other questions? We've got a minute or two here or so. Any other questions on any any cover crop question? Yeah, I got a question about is any – I know kosher weed gets a bad rap because it's now resistant to Roundup and D and a lot of spots. Yeah. Has anybody been messing with it for cover crop? Because it's super water efficient and it can grow a lot of biomass. Okay, I'm sure for some people that would be like asking if Johnson grass could be a good cover crop. But uh, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll leave that up to the others. We don't have kosher in my area. Who deals with kosher? Is it is it maybe is it is it could it be the next great cover crop or or what? Any comments? I guess there are a lot of advanced farmers out in western Kansas after all. <laughs> so. I, I didn't I didn't know they were all using cover crops and and instead of letting their fallow grow wild. So uh, I I I completely had the wrong opinion this entire time. <laughs> I sense I a, I, I sense, yeah I sense a tongue in cheek there, but that's good. Go ahead, Eric. The only time we'll let kosher grow is a cover crop is in our saline spots where we can't get anything else to grow. Okay. But I wouldn't necessarily call it a cover crop, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's where I was just trying to use it as because nothing else grows in a lot of our high saline spots. And then if you can get enough kosher to grow, you can plant like tall wheatgrass into the kosher stubble. And then I found that you can get tall wheatgrass to establish after that. But it is kind of a worst case scenario, but it's, it's like better than nothing, I guess. Well, in all seriousness, I, I know you're asking a serious question there, Derek. Uh, Derek's from Oregon, by the way. Um, Eastern Oregon dryland. Uh, anyway, I think the biggest concern is how do you control it? How do you terminate it? And if that could be figured out, I'm, I'm just kind of surmising here. Someone else can correct me if I'm wrong. If we could figure out how to terminate kosher, maybe there would be some merit to managing it. I'll just put it that way. Any, any thoughts on that? I guess our, our saline areas are typically small enough where we can get in there and clip it, you know, versus mm. trying to spray it or, or terminate it in other ways, keep it from going to seed however we can. Okay, any other comments? Kind of last call here. This is Andy here. I would think kosher would be got a pretty strong main stem. It might just, it might be able to be crimped, actually, because of the, the growth habit of it. There you go, Andy, a new project for 2018, Roll Cripping Kosher. Let us know how it works out. And then you start collecting the seeds if it works out, and you might have a business. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I think, I think 
Mallow would be a real good cover crop for other people as well. So that's, <laughs> I have really good ideas. This is not close to me. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Hey, well, I just want to thank you all. Great question, great discussion today. Uh, appreciate your support. We'll look forward to uh, seeing you on Facebook discussion group or, or next week. And uh, have a great week as you're getting ready for planting. See ya.